Today is the sixth day of our summer seven-day session, uh, 12th of January, 2023. And um, this morning we're going to take up the topic of koans. Um, most of you are working on a koan, and we've had five days of not much talking about them because Master Banke, as far as can be ascertained, didn't use them and didn't actually think all that highly of them. He'd call them old stories. And they are old stories. Um, Robert Aiken has called the koan collection the folklore of Zen. Um, another way of looking at them would be as what um, Maya Angelou calls deep talk. This is, this is a phrase that comes from West Africa. And uh, when a person may have, may have done something wrong or need to be reprimanded, um, they might be sat down and talked to by someone older and then maybe a parable or an axiom or a story might be, be um, told to illustrate the point that is being made. And then somebody would say, take that as deep talk. And she, she says, meaning that you will never find the answer. You can continue to go down deeper and deeper. So deep talk, talk that, and writing that, that touches our depths, our bottomless depths. This isn't going to be some kind of exhaustive review, but more just touching on some aspects of koans. Um, we'll look a little bit at their purpose, um, also how they work, and why Master Hakuin uh, might call them vile. But before we, before we start, I'll share you with you a, a poem which was, the, which was the prompt for this talk. And it comes from um, the Book of Hours, Love Poems to God by Rainer Maria Rilke in a translation by uh, Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. Uh, many of you may have heard of Joanna Macy in the context of um, peacework uh, and um, read some of her really wonderful books. Uh, Anita Barrows is a poet and a translator. And this is the short poem. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been searching, I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm? or a great song. This, this poem really struck me when I reread it earlier in the week. Rilke is talking about, about his own, you could say his own life, his own spiritual life, but he could just as well have been talking about um, koan practice. 
says, I may not complete this last one, meaning circles that uh, reach across the world, but I give myself to it. The notion that there could be things that we do in life that um, we won't complete, we won't finish this time around, and yet they're still worth doing. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Again, this, this sense of, of there being uh, deep talk, questions that we've been asking ourselves as human beings for thousands of years. And the sense of the mystery that we ask the questions even if we may not receive any kind of answer in the conventional sense. I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm or a great song? So uh, it's the kind of background to our talk and we may come back to that at the end of this time. So first, what are koans for? And putting it in the, in the simplest way, koans are to open the mind and to get us to go beyond normal ways of thinking and, and talking about things. Really um, to free us from our our fixed ideas about ourselves and our preoccupation with the self. The self with a, with a, with a small s. Years ago, somebody shared me, um, shared with me some an excerpt of a talk by John Sherman, who is a um, teacher in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi, who's in there, the central practice they do is, who am I? So very um, akin to, to what is this? And he's talking about how, what, what the, this question um, can address in, in the sense of our, soul, our false beliefs about who we are. He says this, we go through life with this deeply held, absolutely invisible, unconscious, unseeable, false conviction that I am the story of me. Where I was born, who my parents were, what my background is, what I have wanted, what I have failed to want, what I should want, what I shouldn't want, what I have been, what I should be, what I shouldn't be, what I think, what I do, what I don't think, what I don't do, what I, I want, what I want, what I want, who I'm married to, who I'm not married to, what I love, what I despise, what I have learned, what I have forgotten, my worthlessness, my worthiness. It goes on. 
if I can find the other page. I think that's probably enough anyway, you get the idea. All of this, all of this stuff, um, all of this, um, obsession with ourselves. And the koan connect is uh, a circuit breaker, breaker to all of this. Um, from a historical point of view, koans date back to the Tang dynasty. The, they are often uh, records of um, encounters between, between masters and, and disciples. Um, Xu Yun, the great Chinese 20th century Chan master, um, said this about koans. He also refers to Hua Do, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Up to the Tang, which um, ended, I think, around 9.30, and, and Song dynasties, most adherents of the Chan sect became enlightened after hearing a word or sentence. The transmission from master to disciple did not include anything but the sealing of mind by mind, and there was no fixed Dharma taught. In their questions and answers, the role played by a master was only to untie the bonds fettering his or her disciple according to available circumstances, just like the giving of an appropriate medicine for each particular ailment. In and after the Song dynasty, human potentialities became duller, and the instructions given by the masters were not carried out by their disciples. For instance, when they were taught to lay down everything and to not think of good or evil, practices could not lay down anything and could not stop thinking of either good or evil. I think we can relate to that one. Under these circumstances, the ancestors and masters were compelled to devise a poison-against-poison poison method by teaching their followers to inquire into a kung an or look into a wado. Their disciples were even taught to hold a meaningless wado as firmly as possible in their minds without losing their grip even for the shortest possible moment, in the same way as a rat will stubbornly bite the board of a coffin at a fixed spot until it has made a hole. The aim of this method was to use a, <coughs> use a single thought to oppose and arrest myriad thoughts because the masters had no alternative. It was like an operation which became imperative when poison had been introduced into the body. The, the key here is the, the idea of using a single thought to oppose and arrest myriad thoughts. Or, or, as he says earlier, to use poison against poison. Because um, koans are words. In Japan, if you're in a zendo where a lot of people were working on uh, mu, then sometimes the teacher might go around the zendo saying, Tada muji, Tada muji. I heard this from, from uh, my teacher, um, 
Roshi Bowden that, that this is what Tangan Roshi used to do in at Bukokuji when he was there. Tada Muji means just the word Mu. Just the word Mu. Using it like Manjushri's sword to um, lop off whatever arises in the mind. So he mentions in this explanation the, the Kungan, the Koan, and the Huado. The Kungan is, is the, the story of the encounter, particular encounter, which contains some Dharma meaning. And then the Nub is that same meaning kind of boiled down into a single word or short phrase that form part of the Koan. So everybody is familiar with um, the the nub mu, and then the story that goes that lies behind that um, that nub is uh, among us. Jiao Zhou Joshu does even a dog have the Buddha nature? And Jiao Zhou said, "Mu." So one works on mu. This has been for at least two hundred years or so that. Just, just the, the nub, the huado, is given to the student. You don't um, repeat the whole case, but just boil it all down to the word mu. And, and the, this is another way in which a koan works, is by um, being a kind of prism to which we can pour all our disparate questions and, and give them focus in this single word, mu. People may be less familiar with the, back, the background, the huado that exists um, behind the, the koan, what is this, or what? Uh, I'll read a little bit here from um, a, little article that appeared in Tricycle in 2008 by Martine Batchelor and she gives some very helpful points on um, working with this koan which is very commonly taken up in Korea by uh, Zen students as their first of their first koan. So what is this derives from an, an encounter between the sixth patriarch or ancestor, Wei Nung, whose dates are 638 to 713, common era, and a young monk, Huai Rung, who became one of his foremost disciples, and his full name is Nan Yue Huai Rung, Nangaku in Japanese, and uh, sixth ancestor is Eno in Japanese. So here's the, here's the case, the, the mondo, that lies behind the question, what is this? Huai Rang entered the room and bowed to Hui Nang. Hui Nang said, where do you come from? Very common opening move on behalf of our master. Where, where are you coming from? Spiritually, where are you coming from? I came from Mount Song, re replied Huai Rang. 
What is this and how did it get here? demanded Huai Nung. What is this and how did it get here? Huai Rang could not answer and remained speechless. He practiced for many years until he understood. Elsewhere it says that he, he sat with this for eight years. And you can imagine not just um, doing an occasional sesshin, but intensive monastic practice for eight years. He went to see Huaynang to tell him about his breakthrough. Huaynang asked, what is this? Huairang replied, to say it is a thing misses the mark, but still it can be cultivated. So this is the koan, and the question that comes out of what is, what is this is the central point, the hua do. Hua is pretty much the same, I think, pronunciation in both Korean and, and Chinese. She says a little more, which, which um, I think is a very helpful guidance for people working on what is this. The practice is very simple. Whether you are walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, you ask repeatedly, what is this? What is this? You have to be careful not to slip into intellectual inquiry, for you are not looking for an intellectual answer. You are turning the light of inquiry back onto yourself and your whole experience in this moment. That's a very uh, key point. Say it again. You are turning the light of inquiry back onto yourself and your whole experience in this moment. And doing this as continuously as you can. What is this thought? You're not asking what is this thought, sound, sensation or external object. If you need to put it in a meaningful context, you are asking, what is it that is hearing, feeling, thinking? You're not asking, what is the taste of the tea or the tea itself? You are asking, what is it that tastes the tea? What is it even before you taste the tea? And, and it may be a real revelation to us, so working on this, just to realize, perhaps for the first time, that Everything we do, everything ex we experience, has a mental component. We are never, ever experiencing the world separate from our own mind. How could we? The mind is the, the experiencer. She continues, my own teacher, Master Kusan, used to try to help us by pointing out that the answer to the question was not an object because you could not describe it as long or short, this or that color. It was not empty space either because empty space cannot speak. It was not the Buddha because we had not yet awakened to our Buddha nature. It was not the master of the body, the source of consciousness, or any other designation because those were mere words and not the actual experience. So you are left with questioning. You ask what is this because you do not know. 
We ask what is this because we do not know. We are not speculating with our mind. We are trying to become one with the question. The most important part of the question is not the meaning of the words themselves, but the question mark. We are asking unconditionally, what is this? Without looking for an answer, without expecting an answer, we are questioning for questioning's sake. This is a practice of questioning, not of answering. We are trying to develop a sensation of openness, of wonderment. As we throw out the question, what is this? We are opening ourselves to the moment. There is no place we can rest. We are letting go of our need for knowledge and security, and our body and mind themselves become a question. to say a little bit more about what a koan is and isn't. Um, this comes from Ruth Fuller Sasaki, who um, was a pioneer of, of Western Zen, uh, put together a big volume called Zen Dust, which is, was like a, a handbook for people in early um, years of Zen in America because there was so little material around. This was a whole compendium of information about masters, koans. And she says this about koans. The koan is not a conundrum to be solved by a nimble wit. It is not a verbal psychiatric device for shocking the disintegrated ego of a student into some kind of stability. Nor, in my opinion, is it ever a paradoxical statement, except to those who view it from outside. When the koan is resolved, it is realized to be a simple and clear statement made from the state of consciousness which it has helped to awaken. I'll say that last sentence again. When the koan is resolved, it is realized to be a simple and clear statement made from the state of consciousness which has, it has helped to awaken. Um, Stephen Batchelor said of koans that they uh, are not merely a means to an end of awakening, but partake in the nature of that end. He says, the practice of meditation is to allow mystery to shine through, to acquaint ourselves both slowly and abruptly with what is our origin and culmination. Meditation and mystery are inseparable. We will we'll get quite stuck if we see koans as a means to an end. In some way, we're looking beyond, then looking beyond the koan to what come out of it. But the koans are itself the way. 
Wonderment is the way. Another um, quote about what, what koans are. This is from John Tarrant Roshi. Koans are devices for entering what is real in life. They open a gate in the mind. The other side of the gate is the background behind everything we do, the ideas and actions we thought of as important foreground stuff come to an end and an opening appears. An opening appears. And now a little bit about how koans work. This is from Master Hakuin, who, who completely overhauled and revived the, the koan curriculum in uh, Japanese Rinzai Zen. He says, this is the analogy that he sets up first, a person may not be ruined because he commits a single wrong act. But if he persists in wrongdoing, then eventually he will bring about his own downfall, whether he likes it or not. When that time comes, he will not be able to prevent it, even if he goes to all the gods of heaven and earth and begs with tears in his eyes for their help. Investigating a koan is like that. It isn't a question of choosing a koan, scrutinizing it once and penetrating it. If you work on it relentlessly, with unflagging devotion, you will penetrate it whether you want to or not. When that time comes, even the combined effort of all the devil kings in the ten directions could not prevent it from happening. Why, they couldn't even glimpse what was going on. And there is nothing that could bring you, and there is nothing that could bring you such intense joy and satisfaction. So the, the same person who talks about those vile koans is here saying that, that seeing into one, coming intimate with it, um, there's nothing to compare to the sense of joy and satisfaction in, in realization. So we'd be missing the point If we thought um, koan work was was about um, cracking the koan quickly, it's it's the repetition, it's the devotion that uh, creates the the conditions for the koan's truths to be revealed to us. Whereas, as um, 
Stephen Batchelor said, the, the process partakes of the end. So in, in working on a koan, we, we um, uh, we repeat it countless times, and that's our, our way of, of keeping the question alive, giving it momentum. And in, in doing that, we're, we're um, emptying out all those, those, those stories we were telling ourselves about about who we are and, and what we are and sh who we should be and all of that, um, that gets to have less and less power over us. There are other traditions which, which have analogous practices. There's um, various things in Christianity and in Orthodox Christianity. There's the the, um, uh, the the way of the pilgrim, which is um, repeating a, a prayer in a, until it's it's filling one's whole being. And um, in the Sufi tradition, there's there's something called uh, the broom of no. There's a little bit about this from um, the preface to a, a, a story from Rumi. The broom of no, and the interesting, the word same, the word no here. Um, mu, of course means no or not. So the Sufis use the metaphor of the sword or broom of la. And this la is the first word of the uh, profession of faith that Muslims say many times every day. Um, la ilaha illallah. Excuse my poor pronunciation. But the, the translation is um, there is no God save God. There's no God other than God. And the first, in the Arabic, the first word of that profession of faith is La. And the Sufis say that this La is like a sword that cuts off everything that is not God. Or else, it can be seen as a broom which must clean the house, a house, before the beloved can take up residence in it. So a very big part of Khan practice is, is emptying out forgetting the self.
this, um, this piece of a Rumi poem here about, about this um, forgetting the self. It's, people have probably heard this before. It's, it's, it's around in many different forms. A man knocked at the door of his beloved. Who are you, trusted one? Thus asked the friend. He answered, I. The friend said, go away. There is no place for people raw and crude here. What then could cook the raw and rescue him? But separation's fire and exile's flame. The poor man went to travel a whole year and burned in separation from his friend. And he matured, was cooked and burnt, returned and carefully approached the friend's abode. He walked around it now in cautious fear, lest from his lips unfitting words appear. His friend called out, Who is at my door? The answer, You, dear, you are at the door. He said, Come in, now that you are all I. There is no room in this house for two eyes. This, this um, exile that's in this story, where, where the, the lover is rejected by the beloved and has to go into exile, sometimes working on a koan can feel like that. We can feel alienated even. <coughs> but that, that exile is the cooking that is required before there can be this union in the, in the in Sufi terms, <coughs> union of the union of the lover and the beloved. He says, "There's no room in this house for two eyes." He's talking here about the, the eye that the baby Buddha was talking about when he said, "Above the heavens, below the heavens, I alone am the honoured one." That kind of. <coughs> So our last um, topic, why did Master Hakuin talk about those vile koans, even when he was at the same time talking about the joy and satisfaction from seeing into a koan? There's, there's probably more than one answer to this, but one, one of the things that surely people will relate to is they're vile because they require so much of us and, and especially they demand that we go repeatedly into unknown territory and allow ourselves to be rattled, to be shaken up. It's impossible to have business as usual when asking questions, these deep questions about who am I and what is this, the nature of things. Um, there's a writer, Greg Lavoie, um, I can't remember the name of the book that he, he wrote, 
Um, but in it he mentions the work of Elia Prigogine, who is a, was a chemist who researched um, what he called dissipative structures. And one of his theories or, or propositions was that, was that friction is a fundamental property of nature and nothing grows without it. He says, it is precisely the quality of fragility, the capacity for being shaken up, that is paradoxically the key to growth. Any structure, whether or not molecular, chemical, physical, social, or psychological, um, that is insulated from disturbance is also protected from change. So it's uncomfortable in con work because we're, we're being called upon to kind of strip off our insulation. That's why we can often come out of Sishin feeling quite delicate. We have to um, take care of what we expose ourselves to in those initial days when we return to our lives, the rest of our lives. Greg Lavoy adds, we must therefore be willing to get shaken up, to submit ourselves to the dark blossomings of chaos in order to reap the blessings of growth. Much of this is axiomatic. Stress often prompts breakthroughs. Crises point towards opportunities. Chaos is an integral part of the creative process. And protest abets the cause of democracy. The whole science of immunization is based on this wisdom. We introduce a bit of chaos in order to prevent a lot of chaos. Just enough, but not too much. We shake up the system for the sake of helping it to evolve and become stronger. So we can understand koans like this, um, while also recognizing that like much medicine, it can be pretty bitter. Another aspect of, of um, the unpleasant nature of koans is, and we've touched this a little bit, that they're bottomless. They're, they, um, there's no, no end to, the, to the, the plumbing of their depths. I think here of a, a Gertrude Stein poem there ain't no answer. There ain't going to be any answer. There never was an answer. There's the answer. So we, we, we struggle, we enter into not knowing, and what we reveal is a deeper not knowing.
the, the old masters recognize that this is um, challenging to say the least. One, one master, Shuedo Sicho in uh, Japanese, said, how many times have I gone down for you into the blue dragon's cave? How many times have I descended? Have I gone, gone into, into dark places? John Tarrant um, has written a whole book about this called The Something, Something the Dark, The, the Light in the Dark. Um, he says, when we undertake, undertake a great new thing, an inner anxiety attends us. If we are true to our task, we become incompetent for all our learning is for the previous work, inapplicable now. It's as if we have to run the new way of seeing past the old problems. Whenever we have a series of very positive experiences, then we must look for the descent to come. It is not because there is some malign energy in the universe. It is more a rule of nature. Darkness follows light, and in turn is followed by light. A field must lie fallow. Autumn must wither the stalks for the new corn to be planted. Something in us must die before the new way can permeate our lives. A composer and musician described his experiences like this. Whenever I am composing a new piece, it is the same. I have to go through the agony of not being able to do it. After I've suffered for a while, the piece opens up. I keep trying to cut out the stage of incompetence and misery, but it can't be done, and I'm not sure that I would want to do it. The blackness is the door of the creative process. How, how much we'd like to be able to just cut to the chase and, and, and avoid this, this descending into a place where we don't know. In inner development, this is an infallible law. We regress, breaking down the old rules before we take the next step. In any creative process, we have to go down into the darkness before we can rise up. When we are humble, we don't claim or want to be other than we are. We enter our pain as the door to the next landing of the stair. Well, our, our time is up. Just finish off with uh, Rilke's poem again. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower, I've been circling for thousands of years, and still I don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>